Awesome. Thank you, Taylor Brooks, for that reading. I hope that her reading that gives us a sense of the vibe maybe for the scene that's taking place that we're thinking about today. And that's what I want to reflect on um, during our sermon today. And um, I know it's a, it's a powerful story. It's a story many of us know where these two relatives meet, Mary and Elizabeth. But I want to maybe look at it from an angle that maybe we haven't focused on a whole bunch in the past. And that is to think about um, the shame that is lurking in this story in a number of different places. There are aspects of shame throughout this story in a number of ways, and I want to I look at those. As we do, we, we turn to look at the main characters, Mary and Elizabeth. And, you know, there are lots of great things that are taking place in their lives right now. Um, I, one, of the, Scott, one of the articles I read in researching for today's sermon was titled, Miracle Mothers Meet, which just sounded like such a funny title to me. But, but they've got these great miracles that are taking place, but they also have this stress that's all in the background of this thing, of what's, where they've been or what's going on now. And I want to pause and really take a, a deep look at that for a moment. If you start by first looking at uh, Mary. So Mary is betrothed, which is a term we don't use now. It's not a concept that we're familiar with in general. But it's this idea that they, were, they had undertaken this legal commitment, Joseph and her had, that they would marry and that they would live together and have a family and do all these things once all the preparations were made, which could be a year or longer than a year in the preparations. And during this time, this, they were already in this legal binding uh, thing, but there was to be no consummation of it um, sexually. Mary's pregnant. So Joseph has this big dilemma that's taking place, as we know, where he knows what the book of Deuteronomy says. He knows that um, adultery would be seen as condemned in this maximum kind of way. But he's also the almost husband of Mary, and he loves her. He doesn't want her to be exposed. And as it says in Matthew 1, he doesn't want her to be subjected to shame. But that's exactly what society would do, exactly what the culture would do, would be to shame her, that she's pregnant outside of um, marriage. And it's interesting to think about, you know, there's so much in this story we don't know what's happening on this, but it's interesting that a number of scholars look at this and they say, actually, Mary was probably uh, about the same age as Taylor, that's, or maybe a little bit older, who's re who read our, um, that reading just a moment ago. And they would say, look, somebody that age in a patriarchal society probably didn't have the autonomy to just say, hey, I'm going to go spend time three months with my aunt or cousin, depending on how we look at it. But... So if that's true, then maybe the more likely scenario is that her parents sent her away to either try to delay or maybe even try to do away with all the public shame that was going to come with what was taking place. That's the stress and the situation going on with Mary. So she's got all this p shame of the public and, and at least hanging over her shoulder as all this is going on. And then we turn to look at the other player in this, Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth is, Mary's young, Elizabeth is old. She's older than people think that she should be bearing a child. Like, she's beyond childbearing age, but she's pregnant. But what that means, like, great for her, but what that means is for everything up till now, she has been really shamed. Because in that society, um, to be a woman who 
was barren was a shameful thing. It was something where the culture would focus on them and also imply that something's wrong. Like, what are you doing wrong? What kind of sin are you hiding? What have you done kind of stuff? There's all this kind of shame. So you get things like when you go back and look at to the patriarchal times, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all them, and you go back and you look at Rachel, Rachel gets this place where she's like, you know, either give me children or let me die. That's how much shame and significance and things there were around that. And to give you a further idea of this, one of the um, biblical scholars I read describes it this way. He says, socially, the position of childless women in the Hebrew Bible is ranked among the despised, the poor, the helpless, and the widows, and contrasted with the mother who's blessed joyfully and rich in children. She's, she has dealt for ages with this, this kind of shame that society wants to give her. And I want to say for a second, she's probably very uniquely positioned to minister to Mary because of all the shame and, and things that she's had to deal with for so long. She's probably in a great place to minister to Mary. And actually, that's oftentimes, I think, the way ministry works. God, if we give him our hurts to him, he'll use our hurts in a way where we can minister to others. But that's a whole other sermon we'll do another day. And then the, all these things I've said so far have to do with the er external part of shame that comes in. But I wonder what kind of voices maybe Mary is experiencing on this day as we think about what she's going through. Because that's also an aspect of shame. You know, the super popular psychologist of our own day, Brene Brown, who... Um, did her dissertation work on shame and who is an Episcopalian. Um, she talks about shame this way. She says that I define shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. And it goes to that little voice that pops up in our head that wants to say these things to us. That, man, you really messed that up. You're not worthy of this. Or somehow you're not worthy of love. Or somehow you're not worthy of whatever God's goodness is. It's that little voice that wants to say a bunch of crap that we need to dust off and get rid of. And I wonder for Mary, you know, because we, we oftentimes want to hold Mary up so high that we don't think she's capable of having some doubts. But you, know, you think about her again, we don't know the things I'm talking about. I'm just giving you some things to maybe ponder and reflect on. But, I mean, she's been visited by Gabriel. She's had this angel. So she's seen an angel who spoke to her. So she's got this. And she now knows the Holy Spirit has visited her. She's pregnant, and she's not been through any sexual relations, but she's pregnant. So she's got all these testimonies in her. But I still wonder if she's got this little voice that's saying, yeah, you're not really worthy of that. You're not really worthy to carry the Lord. Or was that really Gabriel? Or was that some kind of Mediterranean burrito you had that day? Or, you know, or, or what, I mean, like, what kind of doubts is she having at that moment? Or what kind of little voice is she hearing that might say things? I think those are the ways we encounter shame, either sometimes coming from the outside or sometimes from that little voice inside of our heads. And I think most of us, all of us, have experienced that. I certainly know I have. I've ex I think I've experienced both pretty full on. 
and it's really hard um, different phases of this i think about the external shame probably the uh this wasn't deserved but probably the most um, significant one i had was about 10 years ago i was coaching the ymca um, soccer team for my boys and i'd been doing it for about three months and one day i get this call where they said do not go to practice today and I'm like, I've been doing it for three months. Like, what is this? And so I call them, and, I, and they're like, what's going on? They're like, we, we're not able to talk about it. You've got to come in. So I had to call the assistant coach and say, you've got to coach them today. And I go in the next morning, first appointment, like 8 in the morning. What is going on? And they tell me, well, you failed your um, mid-semester background check. And I go, what? And they yell. So and they, they, next question to me, and I noticed they were kind of looking at me funny when I came in. Their next question to me was, have you spent any time in New Hampshire? And I said, well, I went there once for a leaf tour. You know, we did the tour, you know, all that, looked at all the beautiful leaves. And she's like, well, there's a Robert Johnston with your birthday who is a convicted pedophile. And you have failed your background check. And I'm like, well, that's not me. I've only been there on vacation. And they're like, prove it. So then I'm like, what, what do I do? I mean, thankfully, my day job, I'm a lawyer. So I start, I pull up the pleadings. And first of all, I went and li- read the newspaper articles. Horrible, horrible, horrible stuff. I got the pleadings, but there's no home address. There's no hometown. Of course, there's no social security. It's just his name and his birthday, and it's the same as me. And so I'm, I get what they're going through. And I'm at wit's end. But the whole time, you know, I'm in this misery with this thing. Finally, I called the DA to give you the full story, I called the DA on the case who said, I, I'm not able to speak about it. But he said, if you go to this website, you can, you can look up any fe- anybody that's in a federal prison, you can look up. And he said, you can look him up and he's in prison. So I printed that out and went right down there. But still, as I came in the next day with my printout, I could still felt like the receptionists and people are looking at me like, oh, that's the guy, you know? <laughs> so you get this sense of what it is to have that society doing that kind of thing. And, and a lot of us deal with that kind of shame that comes from all kinds of places. I think a lot of people get shame from their parents. Um, I'm going to ha- hasten to say, not me. They're watching online. Um, <laughs> but a lot of us get uh, shame that if, if our parents didn't deal with shame that they've inherited, this stuff can just keep going. And you can have it experienced through kinds of uh, unmitigated rage or unrealistic expectations, or some form of toxic religion that gets given. You know, I've, I've been exposed to that, the, the religion that's all about the externals and the legalism and the pressure and all the kind of stuff that gets into that kind of place. And we can go to the other end, of course, another sermon where you can get into cheap grace. But, this, but all of this stuff can, all of us deal with some kind of level of this, I think. And we could probably tell story after story after story about kinds of shame that we've experienced. And happily, this um, passage we read today is not ultimately about getting us to remember our moments of shame in life. It has a lot more to say. And the truth is we don't know all the circumstances of Mary going to visit Elizabeth and why she went, what she sent, what was she feeling, what was the voice in her, all those kinds of things. But what we do know is as soon as she arrived, she has this amazing experience because of how Elizabeth greets her. She starts, like if she has doubts, the first thing she gets is blessed are you amongst women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Like she gets that straight up, a blessing. And in that, you know, there are two different roles that Elizabeth plays on this day because Elizabeth starts out with really a prophetic, a prof- she's a prophet in this, at this beginning place because she's saying to Mary, 
hey, I know you're pregnant. She, she's the blessed is the fruit of your womb. Like she's already there. She knows this. And this is long before the days of telephone. And then she's saying, not only that, but she knows the baby she's carrying is special. Because like she says, the mother of my Lord is part of what she says. So she's got this prophetic voice. But then she goes on to bless. She goes on to bless Mary. And this is the start in the narrative of Luke's gospel that we're reading that just continues to intensify and get more joyful and more pleasure as it, as it, it goes along. And it's the start of a number of blessings that are going to be given to Jesus where you're going to get that are going to be presented with Zechariah and with Simeon and all the different people that are going to go there. But Mary is blessed. And she's blessed for carrying this child. And she gets sort of an immediate I think blessing because this whole thing turns around again on her because she goes from being sort of in a place where she's worried about getting shamed for the child she's carrying to understanding and hearing that she's going to be blessed and honored for generations because of the child that she's carrying. So it's a complete reversal like in a moment. And she gets God's joy given to her. And I think we start to then think about Elizabeth in this thing too. Like the older women of this time would have been all about condemning a young woman who got pregnant um, outside of marriage. That would have been sort of the expectation. That's what they would have all formed ranks around. But Elizabeth has been through how many decades of shame and she's in touch with God and she's not about to do that. She's gonna welcome and bless and love. And her whole reversal, what she does, she welcomes, she blesses Mary, welcomes her into her home, She's probably going to get ostracized at some level from all her neighbors who are going to say, what are you doing bringing in that, that young teenager that's pregnant in your house and all of this? But Elizabeth gives her that love and that blessing and, that, and that really that grace. And in doing that, she is ch- channeling into really the kind of love Jesus is later going to show. When Jesus welcomes and embraces the prostitute and the tax collector and all the sinners that people think he shouldn't have anything to do with. He goes in, into that kind of place. What we realize is that Elizabeth sees beyond this circumstances to see the reality of God's love taking place in a different fashion. And for us, I think it's a reminder, a moment to ask you know, the question about where we are on experiencing this kind of shame or, or being around others who are living in that place. Because if we get a hold of that kind of love that God has, it'll let us let go of the shame and any kind of hatred and the hurts that go with it. There's refuge in it. Um, I've said before, and I'm not embarrassed to say, I, I see a counselor from time to time, and I've got this counselor that I really love, and she's so good about when I, when I talk to her about my whatevers, about just saying, hey, this is a no-judgment zone. And she doesn't say it, but she's really saying, I'm going to love and support you and encourage you with whatever's going on. And you don't need to ever worry about judgment. That's kind of what she says in it. And I think that's exactly what Elizabeth does. Of course, Elizabeth knows she hasn't done anything wrong. But she, and she blesses her and she goes from that place. And I think that's part of our calling as Christians. I was thinking about this. I don't know if any of you's, you guys got this, but a, a number of weeks ago, it was part of our 75th anniversary kind of stuff. We printed up these shirts that have St. Michael's. There were hundreds, hundreds of these given out. I hope you got one. But the back of it um, says, you are loved, no exceptions. 
And I wonder if we have any hesitation about wearing that because it's great in theory. And I wonder how hard it is for us to be to love the person who's full of things that our society says are shameful and welcome them in and embrace them with that. How hard is that? That's, again, that's what Elizabeth gives to Mary today. and She, she knows she hasn't done wrong. But I, I was thinking about this in the last number of weeks, and I was thinking about this moment of going from theory to practice and where we are on it. And the story that I was thinking about on this was the, um, is a shameful story. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by saying that it is a shameful story. It is a story that makes me angry and mad. And I wonder if I could do what one of the people did in the story I'm going to tell. But this is just in the last couple months. If you saw the accident that took place in Las Vegas with uh, the receiver for the Las Vegas Raiders um, and how Derek Carr responded to him. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I'm going to tell the story. This is with the receiver, Henry Ruggs, who came from Alabama, who joined the team. And he's, I don't know, is his rookie year? Somebody know? Is it rookie year? And he's got his fancy new, cool Corvette, under the influence, takes it up to 156 miles an hour down the road. And he rear ends a 20-year-old woman in the car with her dog, kills them both. And you can see the video of him sitting on the side of the road, wailing, crying w over what he's done, and it's, he's just flushed away at all. And all of us look at that and say, that is horrible, terrible, shameful, and he deserves the 30 years he's probably going to get in prison and all the other stuff. But I wonder, do we have any room in that, even though he's done something shameful, to still give him love? Derek Carr, the um, quarterback for the Raiders, is a very outspoken Christian talks about what Jesus did in his life and how he lives and all this stuff. That week they interviewed him and the reporter asks him about rugs. And this is what he said. He said, I'll always be here for him. That won't change. I'll prove that over the course of time to him. He needs people to love him right now. He's probably feeling a certain type of way about himself right now. He needs to be loved. If no one else will do it, I'll do it. I don't want to do it, but would Jesus call us to do it? And that whole thing about when we live out our faith, how hard is it to simultaneously say that's horrible, terrible, worthy of all this stuff, but God gives you refuge and still goes to that place. And that's what the kind of refuge that Mary got today. I pray all of us have experienced shame. All of us have experienced, if we want, God's refuge and love, mercy, and grace and I think as we head into this final week of Advent, the call is to drink from that well of love and be ready to share it and get ready to celebrate that kind of love coming into the world on Friday. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us in spite of anything we've done, whatever kind of shame we've been through, deserved or undeserved, that you love us and give, you, give us refuge. We pray that you'd help us to imbibe that kind of love and be in a place to share it in the world in ways that are surprising to us, in ways that we cannot even imagine. And we pray that this week you'd help us to prepare to celebrate that love coming into the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.